Hey, look, I was told I could let you talk for a minute. I feel like it's been a minute, all right? It's my turn to talk here. We do want to be careful, though, to get a Bible in your hands. I know you guys are still kind of fellowshipping there a little bit, but if, if uh, you have need for a Bible, raise your hand, and these guys will, will find you and put one right in your hand so you can follow along. Anybody need one? Did I disrupt? I mean, is that, do you normally get to talk longer? I'm sorry. I don't know the protocol. A little bit longer? Yeah, well, now I can go a little bit longer. So, uh, anyway, it's a blessing to be here. You know, the kind of the crud's going around. I've got, I'm a victim of it. I told Tom, look, I could, I could, he called me Thursday. I was like, I kind of got some sniffles, man. Um, so it could be gone by Sunday. It could be worse by Sunday. Well, it's not gone. So uh, I said, if that's going to be a, a, a problem, and he said, no, nah, our church don't care. So, but I don't care. You, you're free to stay away from me. Um, and man, what a blessing that you know, worship today. Um, and I tell you what, man, I remember seeing Laura just kind of being super nervous about uh, playing guitar and singing and just kind of coming and not realizing how incredibly gifted that uh, she was and the work that God was doing on it is to see her leading worship. And it's just, uh, wow, you know, what a blessing. You guys have a blessed fellowship here. And so, uh, yeah, give God praise. Absolutely. <clears throat> All right. Well, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take our Bibles and turn in them this morning to the book, the book of First Corinthians. We're going to look at 11 verses in First Corinthians today in a message that I've entitled simply the gospel. This is a very common uh, passage of scripture uh, that I'm sure you're familiar with. And it's all about, well, the gospel. So let's take our hearts to <clears throat> the Lord. God, once again, we just thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we're asking, Lord, that you would continue to meet with us, to minister to us. Uh, Father, we, we pray, uh, Lord, just your blessing over this fellowship uh, God, we thank you for the way that you're moving and, 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 and ministering in it. And we just pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. Affirm, assure, uh, maybe uh, uh, reveal, uh, God. We're just asking that you would have your way. Pour your spirit out. Give us ears to hear you, we pray. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. Everybody say, Amen. Amen. Top 10, if you were to think of or make a list of the top 10 most important chapters in your Bible, you know, have you ever stopped to think, like, what do I write down? You know, I, get to, I get to write down 10 chapters. I mean, when I think about something like that, I'm like, is such a list even conceivable? I mean, how can you place the principles and precepts of Scripture into a category of greater or lesser than uh, when the fact of the matter is that we've been told that man, it is written, shall not live uh, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? Having said that, if such a list were to be conceived, I just don't see how 1 Corinthians 15 could not be in that list. Uh, here, Paul gives us the fundamental foundational facts of the gospel. He speaks with resolute clarity on the reality of the resurrection, the resurrection body more, uh, how do you say, explicitly than any other passage of Scripture. Just such an incredible, profound passage. I encourage you to get familiar with it. But with that, we're just going to jump into it. So let's look here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We read, Moreover, brethren, 
I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, notice, unless you believed in vain. Now, here in a minute, a few minutes, when we read verses 3 and 4, we'll get the content of the gospel. But for now, Paul wants to focus our attention Upon the benefit of the gospel, if, and that's a big word, you might underline it, circle it, highlight it, make a note of it. If, that's a conditional clause, we receive it, stand in it, and hold fast to it. Now, I have no doubt that the vast majority of you, you early risers, you Bible students, you know, uh, have absolute clarity with regard to what the word uh, gospel even means, but just in order to remove any ambiguity so there's no uncertainty, allow me to reiterate it for you. The word gospel simply means, well, you, you tell me. Yes, absolutely. It means good news. And truth be told, family, there is no greater news than the fact that we can be saved from the penalty and the power, ultimately the very presence of sin because of what Jesus did for us upon the cross. Amen. It's no wonder then that the Holy Spirit would later inspire the Apostle Paul to quote from the prophet Isaiah when he wrote to the Romans saying, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know how that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that the punishment we deserve was poured out upon Jesus and paid for by Jesus. Isn't that good news? And through faith in Him, we're delivered from the heavy hand of God's just wrath and condemnation and are accredited with the very righteousness of Christ, freely given, everlasting life, being robed, if you will, with salvation. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so Paul says, I want to reiterate to you. He says, I declare to you, the gospel, the good news, which I preached or proclaimed or brought to you. But ladies and gentlemen, what I want you to notice here is that if the gospel is to be of any real benefit to you, well, three things need to happen. Again, if you're a note taker, underliner, margin etcher, word circler, uh, if you will, uh, we want to notice these three things that need to happen. Number one, you need to receive it. Number two, you need to stand in it. And number three, hold fast to it. Okay. Unless he says you believed in vain, that is to no avail. So first of all, Paul says that the Corinthian Christians received the gospel He says, I declare to you that which you also received. Now, what does it mean to receive the gospel? Well, it means to welcome the gospel, right? To take in and embrace the message. Uh, To receive it is to truly believe it. Not just academically, not just historically, but from the heart. Again, as Paul told the Romans, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness. If, you know, the word of God, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
is to effectively work in us, then, well, we must, the word is, receive it. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you, here's our word, receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also, notice, effectively works in you who believe. The benefit of the gospel is found, first of all, in receiving it. The Corinthians did that. And not only did they receive it, but we also note, number two, they stood in it. So number one, we're to receive the gospel. <clears throat> number two, we're to stand in the gospel. Now listen, if the word received takes care of an action uh, in the past, then the phrase in which you stand covers what's happening in the present. Yeah? So you receive, that's the past, in which you stand, that's the present. Now listen, despite all of the problems that Paul was dealing with, how many of you are somewhat or are readily familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians? I mean, you, you kind of have an, an aerial understanding of that there, this was a problematic kind of, a, of an epistle. In other words, Paul was writing to correct some serious Problems that the Corinthians had, you know, there were divisions. It was there was carnality, immorality, weird spirituality. But yet the Corinthian congregation had a couple of things going for them, two commendable things going for them. Number one, they received the gospel. And number two, they were standing in the gospel. You know, when you read Paul's letter to the Galatians, you discover he says that they were quickly being moved away from the gospel. He was like, I'm shocked. I'm chagrined at how quickly you're being moved away from the gospel to another gospel, which, in fact, is not a gospel at all. Such was not the case in Corinth. They had received the gospel Uh, They were standing in the gospel. That is, they were being true to the message of the gospel. Their past relationship to the gospel was good. Their present relationship to the gospel was great. But listen, the race was not over. Paul says that you have to, again, our phrase is continue in or hold fast that word then we kind of have an, a, an ellipsis in my mind, a little, you know, dot, 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 a little. Unless, he says, right, you believed in vain. Listen, when it comes to my walk or my relationship with Christ, it's not limited to what I've done in the past or even how I'm maintaining in the present. I have got to, it is incumbent upon me, you see, to continue, that is to hold fast to the gospel in the future. Now, I'm sure you've noted, because I know you guys are well taught here, and and I just, listen, did Jesus, did he ever say, well begun to his servants? I never read that one. But I have heard, I have read what he did say, which was what? Well done good and faithful servant ladies and gentlemen we have to finish well coming strong off 
the blocks, the starting blocks, is good. But guys, we have to continue to hold fast, to live and walk that is maintain our relationship with the Lord by faith. And you know as well as I do that there are all kinds of things out there in this world that are competing for the position to be seated upon the throne of your heart or that want to lead you off into religious endeavors and legalistic approaches to God. We start getting our focus more on what I do, maybe what I don't do, as opposed to what God has done. And honestly, to me, as I think this through, you know, to receive it, to, uh, you know, continue in it, to hold fast to it. To me, this hold fast principle can be one of the most subtle struggles of the committed Christian. You know, things have gone well in the past. Uh, maybe you're doing great today. And, and that's not to say that there's not been times of temptation or seasons of struggle or, you know, these kinds of things. But in the big picture, man, you're in love with the Lord. You're trusting in the Lord. Things are good, you know. The problem that presents itself is the future. Because we can begin to drift or to gravitate towards sin. We allow our relationship with Jesus to become routine. And before we know it, we've left our first love. That was the exhortation that Jesus gave to the church in Revelation chapter 2, right? He, man, they had everything going on. If you went to that church, um, I believe it was Ephesus, the very first one right out of the gate. He was saying, man, you guys love good, you hate evil. If you were to go to that church, you would have thought they were slamming. They had all the outreach programs. Their worship team was great. They had all the latest and greatest technology happening. And it just looked really good on the surface. But underneath it all, Jesus said, listen, your ministries become mechanical. Your relationships become routine. You've left your first love. You know, going through the motions, but no real emotion or inward devotion to God. And, and what that that does to me is it reminds me, ladies and gentlemen, how many of you know I preach to myself? You know what I'm saying? We're, we're all on this journey together. And it reminds me that I have to be intentional about guarding my relationship with Christ. Unless, he says... You've believed in vain or to no avail, to no eternal gain. In other words, guys, it doesn't really matter that you used to be a believer or, uh, you know, when you were younger, you were really on fire for Jesus. None of that matters if you've abandoned all that today. We're to, again, our words are, hold fast that word of the gospel. Do me a favor. Let's leave the book of 1 Corinthians journey back into our Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 18. All right? You guys can get there in a flash. Ezekiel chapter 18. Give me an amen when you get there. Wow. I didn't get to swallow my drink of water. Wait, did, now, was that a turn in your Bible or a click in your phone? 
Come on, somebody. That was a turn in the Bible. Ezekiel 18, let me draw your attention to verse 20, beginning in verse 20. Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning in verse 20, where the prophet writes, The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done. He shall live. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that He should turn from his wicked ways. But when, notice, a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abomination that the wicked man does, shall he live? All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them, notice, he shall die. Let's stop right there. Now listen, I realize that there are those of a certain theological persuasion that if someone walks away from the Lord, then they were never really saved or knew the Lord to begin with. And I don't know, you know, listen, maybe you have a greater understanding of these things than I do. I don't claim to have it all figured out. And, and honestly, I'm not here to, that's, that's kind of a subtle side point. I'm not here to debate. I'm just saying the command of Scripture is to hold fast. Okay? I'm just saying that we're to be careful to maintain a relationship with God that is based or predicated upon grace through faith. It's the John 15 principle in effect. You and me, we are to abide in Christ. Salvation by grace through faith is the benefit of receiving, standing in, and keeping hold on the truth of the gospel. That's the benefit. Now let's look as Paul details the content, beginning in verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, According to the scriptures, guys, this is what I refer to as historical facts prophetically foretold. Um, What that means is that the death and resurrection of Jesus wasn't an accident. Uh, It wasn't something that God had to sort of adopt on the fly as things went terribly and tragically wrong. But rather, uh, it was a part of God's plan from eternity past. Uh, It was put in place, the Bible teaches, before the world began. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel message is not a philosophy. The gospel is not an ideology. It is not good advice or, or even a motivational speech. It is not a once upon a time kind of a, a, a fairy tale or story tale. It is an event that took place in history and contains the power 
to change the eternal destiny of all humanity. Amen? And that's why Paul reminds them, if you notice here, for I delivered to you, look at the words, first of all. He says, when I rolled up in Corinth, my very first order of business wasn't to socialize. You know, it wasn't to uh, mix and mingle. Uh, It wasn't to in any way entertain. He says, I delivered to you that which had been entrusted to me. The phrase, first of all, guys, it speaks of the place of priority or importance. The message of the gospel, you understand, is the most important information that we could ever deliver, ever proclaim, or ever make known. Now listen, I understand, and it's a very common kind of persuasion today in our culture. I understand this notion of uh, wanting to develop a relationship with someone uh, before you know you share the gospel with them. It's like, well, I want to get to know them. I want to develop a relationship with them, and then I will share the, the message of, of the gospel. But you need to understand that is not what the apostles did. It is not necessarily a formula you find in Scripture. When they entered a town... They had a message to deliver, and they didn't wait till they made friends to do it. You understand? Well, what was the message? Well, Paul says, it wasn't something I made up. It did not originate with me, nor did I receive it from man. Guys, you understand, Paul received the message of the gospel from Christ himself. Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. But family, this is an important point, okay? I don't want you to miss this. It is never my... Or and I, and I should also underscore Pastor Tom. It is it is never Pastor Tom's desire. It's never my desire to to bring anything new to you. Okay, you you've probably heard the phrase: if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. Pastors are not inventors of new, exciting doctrines. We are repeaters who reiterate over and over again the message we have received. And the message we've received is one based not upon opinions. It's not this view or that. Well, you know, that's your view. This is my view uh, kind of a thing. It's it's not a matter of of view. It's 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 a matter of facts. And what are the facts of the case? Well, number one, Paul says here that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The death of Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God, the Son of God, is the very center of the Gospel. Why? Well, because of the reason for which He died. It wasn't because of any reason or wrong in him it was for the sin that is intrinsic within you and within me the gospel is not about is not you know about something we need to do the gospel is about what jesus has done for you you see sin presents a problem it separates us from god 
You know, the Bible declares the wages of sin is death. And again, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God says, I have given it to you, that is the blood, upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, of course, the problem, number one, the blood of bulls and goats cannot atone uh, for the sins of man. The Bible goes to great length to detail this for us. It makes a, made a covering, a kofar, not a cleansing, okay? Uh, and so, uh, and it's impossible that sinful man should atone for sinful man. I mean, how does that work? That's like trying to clean your carpet by scattering dirt all over it. It just kind of compounds the problem. And since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, well, now that creates a dilemma. We call it the sin dilemma, right? And there's nothing that we can do to atone for our sin. And so God solves the sin dilemma in becoming a man, fully man, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so being fully human, he can then become what the Bible refers to as a kinsman redeemer. He can stand in the gap on our behalf. And also being fully God, he's perfect and without sin. He is holy. He is righteous. And through the shedding of his blood, atonement is made for our souls. You see, if by one man, and it, it, we, this is called a federal headship, right? We have a federal government. Whether you like it, you don't like it, we learn to live with it. One man representing us all. Right? We call him the President of the United States. Well, the Bible also uh, discusses or develops the principle of federal headship. And if by one man, that is Adam, sin can enter the world, then through one man, that is Christ, the sin of the world can be atoned for. Are you following me? Somehow and in some way, as Christ was hanging upon the cross, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. You know, God the Father laid upon Him the iniquity, the sin, the guilt, the shame of us all. And He bore the wrath that we so deserve. And He bore it in Himself perfectly, totally, satisfying the righteous wrath of God in our place. When you get over into 2 Corinthians, Paul put it like this. He said, For He that is God made Him that is Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Again, it wasn't plan B. Uh, the crucifixion didn't take God by surprise. It was prophesied centuries in advance. You know, Isaiah 53 speaks of how He has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. It says He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus did not die for a political cause or as an enemy of the state. He died 
for our sins. Fact number two, he was buried. Now, why is this detail important? Well, uh, because it confirms for us his death. You don't bury someone uh, unless they're dead. And so, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) coughed right in the mic. Sorry, Tom. Um, He's going to wear it next, right? Or whoever wears it next, I'm sorry. Uh, Nothing a little, uh, you know, they call it sanitizing wipe, won't take care of. Uh, But, uh, you know, listen, you don't, Jesus didn't just disappear. uh, You know, they had his body, they wrapped it in, in grave cloths, they carried him to a tomb, and they buried him. Now, again, this was according to Scripture. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Now, I should also point out, there are more scriptures that detail these things, but for time's sake, I'm kind of limiting what I'm sharing. Fact number three, he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Family, I cannot stress this strongly enough. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an integral indivisible, vital element of the gospel message for many reasons, okay? Uh, One of which being that a dead Savior cannot save anybody. You understand that? Another being that it bears witness to the sinless life of Christ, assuring us that He was indeed the perfect sacrifice. Listen, if the wages of sin is death. We understand this, right? If the wages of sin is death and Jesus himself had sin in his life, then he could not conquer death, right? But if he is sinless, it is therefore impossible, it is necessarily impossible that death should hold him down. The resurrection would be inevitable, okay? So the resurrection verifies, ratifies I I don't even know if that's an accurate way to say it, but it demonstrates the reality of the sinless life of Christ. Another being that this is how he verifies uh, that God the Father did, in fact, uh, accept his sacrifice as sufficient to atone or pay for the sins of the world. You know, perhaps you've heard something to the extent of if the death of Jesus was payment for the sins of the world, then the resurrection of Jesus was the receipt of of paid in full, right? Uh, the, the resurrection shouts, uh, payment received, debt abolished. It's paid in full. Now, we could also point out that the resurrection underscores Jesus's credibility. In other words, just showing that he wasn't some sort of liar, some kind of lunatic, because he, he said on multiple occasions that he would be crucified and that on the third day he would rise again. Well, ladies and gentlemen... If, if he didn't rise again, he could be instantly dismissed as insane. This guy's insane. He said he was going to rise again. He didn't rise again. And honestly, that's the primary reason, isn't it, that the religious leaders had his tomb guarded because they knew what he had said. And they wanted to prevent any kind of tampering with his body or uh, you know, false allegations of a resurrection. So they had his tomb guarded. But it's fascinating to realize that even the resurrection of Jesus was foretold in Scripture. 
In Psalm chapter 16 and verse 10, we read, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol or in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now you can look up Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7 as well. It speaks of being begotten, but not from the womb, but from the tomb. And Paul clarifies that in Acts chapter 13. Now as for the third day, Guys, there are several pictures as well. I'm just going to bring you the one or remind you of the one that Jesus pointed to. And that was the three days and the three nights of Jonah in the belly of the great fish. Jesus pointed to that uh, as a picture of him being three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And even as that fish was unable to hold Jonah down, but would regurgitate him, as it were, uh, back up. Even so, death would not hold Jesus, but would, if you will allow, regurgitate. He would resurrect. He would find himself. He would rise again the third day from the dead. And so uh, God's plan of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world told uh, foretold prophetically, has been shown historically. Now, so far, those are the three facts. Let's look at one more. Now, verse 5, we read, And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Uh, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep or have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, um, and then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So the fourth fact, eyewitnesses uh, to the resurrected Christ. And this is the final piece of evidence to the case that Paul is building that Jesus was raised to life bodily. That he was not a phantom. Uh, people weren't hallucinating. Jesus had risen from the dead. And we love the fact that after he appeared to the women, we see that he appeared first to Peter. Because one might think that maybe he'd have appeared to Peter last of all, if at all, at all. I don't know that I said that right. But, you know, Peter had denied him three times. But this is the love of our Lord. He would restore Peter publicly, but first he met with him, he restored him privately. And then he was seen by the twelve or all the apostles. Now, obviously, Judas was dead. We know that, uh, you know, Thomas was absent at the first meeting. The twelve or this phrase, all the apostles is a figurative term for Jesus's inner circle of the original disciples. Uh, after that, 500, over 500 eyewitnesses at one time. This probably alludes to uh, that passage in Matthew 28 that we call the Great Commission when Jesus was addressing all of his disciples. Listen, how do you know that Julius Caesar ever really lived? Well, people wrote about him, uh, assuming they didn't make him up, and there were eyewitnesses to him. And you trust the testimony of eyewitnesses, even in a court of law. Uh, now, if you have... Over 500 eyewitnesses in a court of law. I was going to say that's a wrap, right? The factual, historical evidence for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen, is overwhelming. 
Paul says when he wrote this, there were hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses still alive to the resurrected Christ. He says, look, go and talk to them about it. I'm not making this up. And then after that, he was seen by James. Now, this would be James, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dads, right? Uh, But his brothers didn't believe in him before the cross, before Jesus rose from the dead, the prophets without honor in his own home. But by Acts chapter 1, his brothers are believers. And as the book of Acts unfolds, James becomes essentially the leader of the early church. What happened? Two words. The resurrection. Guys, Jesus appeared to him. The the resurrected Christ changed his lives. Jesus appeared to him, met with him, and then all the other apostles saw him. And then lastly, uh, the last earthly bodily appearance of Jesus, Paul says, he appeared to me as one born out of due time. In other words, it was kind of weird the way it happened with Paul. That's what he's saying. He didn't get this three-year gestation kind of period as did the others, but he was suddenly, he was brought about almost freakishly as Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Ladies and gentlemen, the cumulative testimony of the eyewitnesses is overwhelming. Not only did they see Jesus after his death, but they saw him in a manner that revolutionized their faith. Many of them would die horribly tragic deaths because they refused to deny what they saw with their own eyes. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. And Paul says in verse 9, and, and we'll begin to uh, you know, land the plane, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God... I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Uh, Paul says, Jesus appeared to me, but I, I barely placed myself in the apostles' company because my situation is very different. You know, as to where they followed Jesus, Paul says, I persecuted the church of God. I tried to eradicate the name of Jesus from the face of the earth. But I want you to underline verse 10 where it says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul gave God's grace all the credit for the change in his life. He was forgiven. He was cleansed and filled with. With God's love where there used to be hate. Uh, And it wasn't because of any work of his own. It was the work of God's grace in his life. Listen, the grace of God that saves your soul will change your life. Okay? It is impossible to receive God's grace and not be changed by God's grace. Now, of course, not every change is going to happen instantly or immediately, but saving grace goes to work in you and will change you from the inside out. And guys, again, notice we're not saved by works, but saving grace will result in works in our lives. The Bible says he who is forgiven much loves much. Paul says 
His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. But then he clarifies, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Listen to me. When the realization of the enormity of God's grace toward your life sets in, I'm just going to tell you, you can't not serve Him. You know what I'm talking about? And it's not guilt. It's gratitude. You know, it's that understanding of, Lord, after all that you have done for me, how can I not serve and give all that I am to you? God doesn't desire that we should receive his grace and become passive. And again, guys, good works, whether it's uh, serving or tithing or studying or, you know, whatever it is aren't ways in which we look to get God to respond to us. It's the way we respond to Him. It's that overflow of His love toward us and His goodness and His grace toward our lives. And finally, verse 11, and uh, if you, if we're going to close here, so this is where I guess worship or keyboard person <laughs> begins to make their way up here. That would be great. Verse 11, he says, Therefore... Whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Guys, in other words, the vessel through whom the message comes uh, is really irrelevant. Whether it was I, whether it was they, he says none of that matters. What matters is that you receive it and believe it. It's how... Salvation occurs. Uh, One person shares the message. Another person believes the message. And God accounts the righteousness of Christ to you by grace through faith in Him. Listen, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our hearts. God, we're so uh, grateful for your love and for your grace. Uh, Lord, that you would reconcile the world to yourself through the cross of Jesus Christ. God, we believe it. We receive it. We stand in it. It's my prayer, God, that you would strengthen us to hold fast the word which was preached to us. God, that our reliance be not upon what we do, but upon what you've done for us. God, we love you, and we just want to thank you for your work, both in our lives and in this place. And uh, Father, I just pray that if there be anybody here, maybe online, who hasn't received your grace, that uh, you just give them the courage even now to call upon you. Just uh, receive the promise of your word that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, Lord, lift up this fellowship, Tom, Lisa, their families, Lord, the situation they're in currently. Just pray that you would be with them, bless them. Lord, that your comfort and peace would surround them. Anyway, Lord, we would just ask that the seed of your word would take root in our hearts. Bring forth fruit that remains for the glory of your name. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen.